With Faye's abduction, Lassiter's about to show what he's made of. Zane Gray, today on the Classic Tales Podcast. Welcome to the Classic Tales Podcast. Thank you for listening. We are proudly supported by our listeners. We couldn't do this without you. Your monthly donation helps in so many ways, and it also gives you access to more classic titles. Go to ClassicTalesAudiobooks.com and become a financial supporter today. A $5 monthly donation gets you an $8 monthly coupon code for any audiobook order. Thank you so much. The first season of the Arsène Lupin podcast is complete. Binge all episodes of our Gentleman Burglar's own show and tell your friends. Links can be found in the show notes. This week's episode starts right where the last one left off. So I'm including a few minutes of the tail end of last week's episode to lead us into chapter 20. And now, Riders of the Purple Sage, part 10 of 12 by Zane Gray. I reckon I don't want to hear no more, said Lassiter. Jane leaned against him, as if some pent-up force had rent its way out. She fell into a paroxysm of weeping. Lassiter held her in silent sympathy. By degrees she regained composure, and she was rising, sensible of being relieved of a weighty burden. When a sudden start on Lassiter's part alarmed her, I heard horses, horses with muffled hoofs, he said, and he got up guardedly. Where's Faye? asked Jane, hurriedly glancing round the shady knoll. The bright-haired child, who had appeared to be close all the time, was not in sight. Faye? called Jane. No answering shout of glee, no patter of flying feet. Jane saw Lassiter stiffen. Faye? Oh, Faye? Jane almost screamed. The leaves quivered and rustled. A lonesome cricket chirped in the grass. A bee hummed by. The silence of the waning afternoon breathed hateful portent. It terrified Jane. When had silence been so infernal? She's only straight out of earshot, faltered Jane, looking at Lassiter. Pale, rigid as a statue, the rider stood. Not in listening, searching posture, but in one of doomed certainty. Suddenly he grasped Jane with an iron hand, and turning his face from her gaze, he strode with her from the knoll. See, Faye played here last, a house of stones and sticks, and here's a corral of pebbles with leaves for horses, said Lassiter, stridently, and pointed to the ground. Back and forth she trailed here, See, she's buried something, a dead grasshopper, and there's a tombstone. Here she went, chasing a lizard. See the tiny streaked trail? She pulled bark off this cottonwood. Look at the dust of the path, the letters you taught her. She's drawn pictures of birds and horses and people. Look, a cross. Well, Jane, your cross. Lassiter dragged Jane on, and as if from a book, read the meaning of Little Fay's trail. All the way down the knoll, through the shrubbery, round and round a cottonwood, 
Faye's vagrant fancy left records of her sweet musings and innocent play. Long had she lingered round a bird nest to leave therein the gaudy wing of a butterfly. Long had she played beside the running stream, sending adrift vessels freighted with pebbly cargo. Then she had wandered through the deep grass, her tiny feet scarcely turning a fragile blade, and she had dreamed beside some old faded flowers. Thus her steps led her into the broad lane. The little dimpled imprints of her bare feet showed clean cut in the dust. They went a little way down the lane, and then, at a point where they stopped, the great tracks of a man led out from the shrubbery and returned. Chapter 20 Lassiter's Way Footprints told the story of Little Fay's abduction. In anguish, Jane Witherstein turned speechlessly to Lassiter, and confirming her fears, she saw him gray-faced, aged all in a moment, stricken as if by a mortal blow. Then all her life seemed to fall about her in wreck and ruin. It's all over, she heard her voice whisper. It's ended. I'm going. I'm going. Where? demanded Lassiter, suddenly looming darkly over her. To... To those cruel men. Speak names, thundered Lassiter. To Bishop Dyer. To Tull, went on Jane, shocked into obedience. Well, what for? I want little Fay. I can't live without her. They've stolen her, as they stole Millie Earn's child. I must have little Faye. I want only her. I give up. I'll go and tell Bishop Dyer. I'm broken. I'll tell him I'm ready for the yoke. Only give me back Faye, and, and I'll marry Tull. Never, hissed Lassiter. His long arm leaped at her. Almost running, he dragged her under the cottonwoods, across the court, into the huge hall of Witherstein House, and he shut the door with a force that jarred the heavy walls. Black Star and Knight and Bells, since their return, had been locked in this hall, and now they stamped on the stone floor. Lassiter released Jane, and like a dizzy man swayed from her with a hoarse cry and leaned shaking against a table where he kept his rider's accoutrements. He began to fumble in his saddlebags. His action brought a clinking, metallic sound, the rattling of gun cartridges. His fingers trembled as he slipped cartridges into an extra belt, but as he buckled it over the one he habitually wore, his hands became steady. This second belt contained two guns, smaller than the black one swinging low, and he slipped them round, so that his coat hid them. Then he felt a swift action. Jane Witherstein watched him, fascinated but uncomprehending, and she saw him rapidly saddle Black Star and Knight. Then he drew her into the light of the huge windows, standing over her, gripping her arm with fingers like cold steel. Yes, Jane, it's ended. But you're not going to die, I'm going instead. Looking at him, he was so terrible of aspect. 
she could not comprehend his words. Who was this man, with a face grey as death, with eyes that would have made her shriek had she the strength, with the strange, ruthlessly bitter lips? Where was the gentle Lassiter? What was this presence in the hall, about him, about her, this cold, invisible presence? Yes, it's ended, Jane, he was saying, so awfully quiet and cool and implacable. And I'm going to make a little call. I'll lock you in here, and when I get back, have the saddlebags full of meat and bread, and be ready to ride. Lassiter, cried Jane. Desperately, she tried to meet his gray eyes. In vain. Desperately she tried again, fought herself as feeling and thought resurged in torment, and she succeeded. And then she knew. No, 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 she wailed. You said you'd forgone your vengeance. You promised not to kill Bishop Dyer. If you want to talk to me about him, leave off the bishop. I don't understand that name or its use. Oh, hadn't you forgone your vengeance on, on Dyer? Yes. But your actions, your words, your guns, your terrible looks, they don't seem forgoing vengeance. Jane, now it's justice. You'll kill him? If God lets me live another hour, if not God, then the devil who drives me. You'll kill him. For yourself? For your vengeful hate? No. For Millie Earn's sake? No. For little face? No. Oh, for whose? For yours. His blood on my soul, whispered Jane, and she fell to her knees. This was the long-pending hour of fruition. And the habit of years, the religious passion of her life, leaped from lethargy and the long months of gradual drifting to doubt were as if they had never been. If you spill his blood, it'll be on my soul and on my father's. Listen. And she clasped his knees and clung there as he tried to raise her. Listen. Am I nothing to you? Woman, don't trifle at words. I love you, and I'll soon prove it. I'll give myself to you. I'll ride away with you, marry you, if only you'll spare him. His answer was a cold, ringing, terrible laugh. Lassiter, I'll love you. Spare him. No. She sprang up, in despairing, breaking spirit, and encircled his neck with her arms, and held him in an embrace that he strove vainly to loosen. Lassiter, would you kill me? I'm fighting my last fight for the principles of my youth. Love of religion, love of father, you don't know. You can't guess the truth, and I can't speak ill. I'm losing all. I'm changing. All I've gone through is nothing to this hour. Pity me. Help me in my weakness. You're strong again. Oh, so cruelly, coldly strong. You're killing me. I see you, feel you as some other Lassiter. My master, be merciful. Spare him. 
His answer was a ruthless smile. She clung the closer to him and leaned her panting breast on him and lifted her face to his. Lassiter, I do love you. It's leaped out of my agony. It comes suddenly with a terrible blow of truth. You are a man. I never knew it till now. Some wonderful change came to me when you buckled on these guns and showed that gray, awful face. I loved you then. All my life I've loved, but never as now. No woman can love like a broken woman. If it were not for one thing, just one thing, and yet I can't speak it. I'd glory in your manhood, the lion in you that means to slay for me, believe me, and spare dire. Be merciful, great as it's in you to be great. Oh, listen and believe. I have nothing, but I'm a woman, a beautiful woman, Lassiter, a passionate, loving woman, and I love you. Take me. Hide me in some wild place and love me and mend my broken heart. Spare him and take me away. She lifted her face closer and closer to his until their lips nearly touched and she hung upon his neck and with strength almost spent pressed and still pressed her palpitating body to his. Kiss me, she whispered blindly. No, not at your prize. He answered. His voice had changed, for she had lost clearness of hearing. Kiss me. Are you a man? Kiss me and save me. Jane, you never played fair with me. But now you're blistering your lips, blackening your soul with lies. By the memory of my mother, by my Bible. No, I have no Bible. But by my hope of heaven, I swear. I love you. Lassiter's gray lips formed soundless words that meant even her love could not avail to bend his will. As if the hold of her arms was that of a child's, he loosened it and stepped away. Wait, don't go. Oh, hear a last word. May a more just and merciful God than the God I was taught to worship judge me. Forgive me. Save me for I can no longer keep silent. Lassiter, in pleading for Dyer, I've been pleading more for my father. My father was a Mormon master, close to the leaders of the church. It was my father who sent Dyer out to proselyte. It was my father who had the ice-blue eye and the beard of gold. It was my father you got trace of in the past years. Truly, Dyer ruined Millie Urn, dragged her from her home to Utah, to Cottonwoods. But it was for my father. If Millie Urn was ever a wife of a Mormon, that Mormon was my father. I never knew, never will know whether or not she was a wife. Blind I may be, Lassiter, fanatically faithful to a false religion I may have been. But I know justice and my father is beyond human justice. Surely he is meeting just punishment somewhere. Always it has appalled me, the thought of your killing Dyer for my father's sins. So I have prayed. Jane, the past is dead. In my love for you, I forgot the past. 
This thing I'm about to do ain't for myself or Millie or Faye. It's not because of anything that's ever happened in the past, but for what is happening right now. It's for you. And listen, since I was a boy, I've never thanked God for anything. If there is a God, and I've come to believe it, I thank him now for the years that made me Lassiter. I can reach down and feel these big guns and know what I can do with them. And Jane, only one of the miracles Dyer professes to believe in can save him. Again for Jane Witherstein came the spinning of her brain in darkness. And as she whirled in endless chaos, she seemed to be falling at the feet of a luminous figure, a man, Lassiter, who had saved her from herself, who could not be changed, who would slay rightfully. Then she slipped into utter blackness. When she recovered from her faint, she became aware that she was lying on a couch near the window in her sitting room. Her brow felt damp and cold and wet. Someone was chafing her hands. She recognized Judkins and then saw his lean, hard face wore the hue and look of excessive agitation. Judkins, her voice broke weakly. Ah, Miss Witherstein, you're coming around fine. Now just lay still a little. You're all right. Everything's all right. Where is he? Who? Lassiter. You needn't worry none about him. Where is he? Tell me. Instantly. Well, he's in the other room, patching up a few trifling bullet holes. Huh? Bishop Dyer? When I seen him last, a matter of half an hour ago, he was on his knees. He was some busy. But he wasn't praying. How strangely you talk. I'll sit up. I'm, well, strong again. Tell me, Dyer, on his knees, what was he doing? Well, begging your pardon for blunt talk, Miss Witherstein. Dyer was on his knees and not praying. You remember his big, broad hands? You've seen them raised and blessing over old gray men and little curly-headed children like, like Faye Larkin. Come to think of that... I disremember ever hearing of his lifting his big hands and blessing over a woman. Well, when I seen him last, just a little while ago, he was on his knees, not praying, as I remarked. And he was pressing his big hands over some bigger wounds. Man, you drive me mad. Did Lassiter kill Dyer? Yes. Did he kill Tull? No. Tull's out of the village with most of his riders. He's expected back before evening. Lassiter will have to get away before Tull and his riders come in. It's sure death for him here. And worse for you, Miss Witherstein. There'll be some of an uprising when Tull gets back. I shall ride away with Lassiter. Judkins, tell me all you saw, all you know about this killing. She realized, without wonder or amaze, how Judkins's one word, affirming the death of Dyer, that the catastrophe had fallen, had completed the change whereby she had been molded or beaten or broken into another woman. She felt calm, slightly cold, strong as she had not been strong since the first shadow fell upon her. 
I just saw about all of it, Miss Witherstein, and I'll be glad to tell you if you'll only have patience with me, said Judkins earnestly. You see, I've been peculiarly interested, and naturally I'm so excited, and I talk a lot that maybe ain't necessary, but I can't help that. I was at the meeting house where Dyer was holding court. You know, he always acts as magistrate and judge when tolls away. And the trial was for trying what was left of my boy riders that helped me hold your cattle for a lot of hatched-up things the boys never did. We're used to that, and the boys wouldn't have minded being locked up for a while or having to dig ditches or whatever the judge laid down. You see, I divided the gold you gave me among all my boys, and they all hid it, and they all feel rich. Howsomever, the court was adjourned before the judge passed sentence. Yes, ma'am court was adjourned some strange and quick, much as if lightning had struck the meeting house. I had trouble attending the trial, but I got in. There was a good many people there, all my boys and Judge Dyer with his several clerks. Also he had with him the five riders who'd been guarding him pretty close of late. There was Carter, Wright, Jangerson, and two new riders from Stone Bridge. I didn't hear their names, but I heard they was handy men with guns, and they looked more like rustlers than riders. Anyway, there they was, the five all in a row. Judge Dyer was telling Willie Kern, one of my best and steadiest boys, Dyer was telling him how there was a ditch opened near Willie's home, letting water through his lot, where it had not to go. And Willie was trying to get a word in to prove he wasn't at home all the day it happened, which was true, as I know but Willie couldn't get a word in. And then Judge Dyer went on laying down the law. And all at once, he happened to look down the long room. And if ever any man turned to stone, he was that man. Naturally, I looked back to see what had acted so powerful strange on the judge. And there, halfway up the room, in the middle of the wide aisle, stood Lassiter. All white and black he looked, and I can't think of anything he resembled unless it's death. Venters made that same room some still and chilly when he called Tull, but this was different. I give my word, Miss Witherstein, that I went cold to my very marrow. I don't know why, but Lassiter had a way about him that's awful. He spoke a word, a name, I couldn't understand it, though he spoke clear as a bell. I was too excited, maybe. Judge Dyer must have understood it, and a lot more that was mystery to me, for he pitched forward out of his chair right onto the platform. Then them five riders, Dyer's bodyguards, they jumped up, and two of them that I found out afterward were strangers from Stone Bridge. They piled right out of a window, so quick you couldn't catch your breath. It was plain they wasn't Mormons. Jangerson, Carter, and Wright eyed Lassiter for what must have been a second. It seemed like an hour, and they went white and strong. But they didn't weaken nor lose their nerve. I had a good look at Lassiter. He stood sort of stiff, bending a little, and both his arms were crooked, and his hands looked like a hawk's claws. But there ain't no telling how his eyes looked. I know this, though, and that his eyes could read the mind of any man about to throw a gun. And in watching him, of course, I couldn't see the three men go for their guns. And though I was looking right at Lassiter, looking hard, 
I couldn't see how he drawed. He was quicker than eyesight, that's all. But I see the red spurting of his guns and heard his shots just the very littlest instant before I heard the shots of the riders. And when I turned, Wright and Carter was down, and Jengison, who's tough like a steer, was pulling the trigger of a wobbling gun. But it was plain he was shot through, plumb center. And suddenly he fell with a crash, and his gun clattered on the floor. Then there was a hell of a silence. Nobody breathed. Certain I didn't anyway. I saw Lassiter slip a smoking gun back in a belt. But he hadn't thrown either of the big black guns, and I thought that strange. And all this was happening quick. You can't imagine how quick. They come a-scraping on the floor, and Dyer got up, his face like lead. I wanted to watch Lassiter, but Dyer's face, once I seen it like that, glued my eyes. I seen him go for his gun. Why, I could have done it better, quicker. And then there was a thundering shot from Lassiter, and he hit Dyer's right arm, and his gun went off as it dropped. He looked at Lassiter like a cornered sage wolf, and sort of howled and reached down for his gun. He just picked it off the floor and was raising it when another thundering shot almost tore that arm off, so it seemed to me. The gun dropped again, and he went down on his knees, kind of floundering after it. It was some strange and terrible to see his awful earnestness. Why would such a man cling so to life? Anyway, he got the gun with left hand and was raising it, pulling trigger in his madness when the third thundering shot hit his left arm and he dropped the gun again. But that left arm wasn't useless yet, for he grabbed up the gun and with a shaken aim that would have been pitiful to me and any other man, he began to shoot. One wild bullet struck a man twenty feet from Lassiter and it killed that man, as I seen afterward. Then come a bunch of thundering shots, nine, I calculated after. They come so quick I couldn't count them, and I knew Lassiter had turned the black guns loose on Dyer. I'm telling you straight, Miss Witherstein, for I want you to know. Afterward, you'll get over it. I've seen some soul-wracking scenes on this Utah border, but this was the awfulest. I remember I closed my eyes, and for a minute I thought of the strangest things, out of place there, such as you'd never dream would come to mind. I saw the sage and running horses, and that's the beautifulest sight to me. And I saw dim things in the dark, and there was a kind of humming in my ears, and I remember distinctly, for it was what made all these things whirl out of my mind and open my eyes. I remember distinctly. It was the smell of gunpowder. The court had about adjourned for that judge. He was on his knees, and he wasn't praying. He was gasping and trying to press his big, flopping, crippled hands over his body. Lassiter had sent all those last thundering shots through his body. That was Lassiter's way. And Lassiter spoke, and if I ever forget his words, I'll never forget the sound of his voice. Proselyter, I reckon you'd better call quick on that God who reveals himself to you on earth, because he won't be visiting the place you're going to. And then I seen Dyer look at his big hanging hands. It wasn't big enough for the last work he set them to. And he looked up at Lassiter. And then he stared horrible at something that wasn't Lassiter. Nor anyone there, nor the room, nor the branches of purple sage peeping into the window. Whatever he seen, 
It was with the look of a man who discovers something too late. That's a terrible look. And with a horrible understanding cry, he slid forward on his face. Judkins paused in his narrative, breathing heavily while he wiped his perspiring brow. That's about all, he concluded. Lassiter left the meeting house, and I hurried to catch up with him. He was bleeding from three gunshots, none of them much to bother him. And we come right up here. I found you laying in the hall, and I had to work some over you. Jane Witherstein offered up no prayer for Dyer's soul. Lassiter's step sounded in the hall, the familiar soft, silver-clinking step, and she heard it with thrilling new emotions, in which was a vague joy in her for very fear of him. The door opened and she saw him, the old Lassiter, slow, easy, gentle, cool, yet not exactly the same Lassiter. She rose, and for a moment her eyes blurred and swam in tears. Are you all, all right? she asked tremulously. I reckon. Lassiter, I'll ride away with you. Hide me till danger is past, till we are forgotten. Then take me where you will. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. He kissed her hand with a quaint grace and courtesy that came to him in rare moments. Black Star and Night are ready, he said simply. His quiet mention of the black racers spurred Jane into action. Hurrying to her room, she changed to her rider's suit, packed her jewelry and the gold that was left, and all the woman's apparel for which there was space in the saddlebags, and then returned to the hall. Blackstar stamped his iron-shod hoofs and tossed his beautiful head and eyed her with knowing eyes. Judkins, I give bells to you, said Jane. I hope you will always keep him and be good to him. Judkins mumbled thanks that he could not speak fluently and his eyes flashed. Lassiter strapped Jane's saddlebags upon Black Star and led the racers out into the court. Judkins, you ride with Jane out into the sage. If you see any riders coming, shout quick twice. And Jane, don't look back. I'll catch up soon. We'll get to the break into the pass before midnight, and then wait until morning to go down. Black Star bent his graceful neck and bowed his noble head, and his broad shoulders yielded as he knelt for Jane to mount. She rode out of the court beside Judkins, through the grove, across the wide lane into the sage, and she realized that she was leaving Witherstein House forever, and she did not look back. A strange, dreamy, calm peace pervaded her soul. Her doom had fallen upon her, but instead of finding life no longer worth living, she found it doubly significant, full of sweetness as the western breeze, beautiful and unknown as the sage slope, stretching its purple sunset shadows before her. She became aware of Judkins's hand touching hers. She heard him speak a husky goodbye. Then into the place of bells shot the dead black, keen, racy nose of night, and she knew Lassiter rode beside her. Don't look back he said, and his voice, too, was not clear. Facing straight ahead, seeing only the waving, shadowy sage, 
Jane held out her gauntleted hand to feel it enclosed in strong clasp. So she rode on without a backward glance at the beautiful grove of cottonwoods. She did not seem to think of the past, of what she left forever, but of the color and mystery and wildness of the sage slope leading down to Deception Pass and of the future. She watched the shadows lengthen down the slope. She felt the cool west wind sweeping by from the rear, and she wondered at low, yellow clouds sailing swiftly over her and beyond. Don't look back, said Lassiter. Thick-driving belts of smoke traveled by on the wind, and with it came a strong, pungent odor of burning wood. Lassiter had fired Witherstein House, but Jane did not look back. A misty veil obscured the clear, searching gaze she had kept steadfastly upon the purple slope and the dim lines of canyons. It passed, as passed the rolling clouds of smoke, and she saw the valley deepening into the shades of twilight. Night came on, swift as the fleet racers, and stars peeped out to brighten and grow, and the huge, windy, eastern heave of sage level paled under a rising moon and turned to silver. Blanched in moonlight, the sage yet seemed to hold its hue of purple and was infinitely more wild and lonely. So the night hours wore on, and Jane Witherstein never once looked back. This is B.J. Harrison. I hope you've enjoyed this unabridged production of Riders of the Purple Sage, Part 10 of 12, by Zane Gray. If you have enjoyed this book, please become a monthly supporter by going to classictalesaudiobooks.com. Donate $5 a month and get a monthly coupon code for $8 off any audiobook order. It's a great way to build your library of classic literature. Thanks for pitching in. Thank you for joining me today and allowing classic literature to awaken your better self. Please join me every week and we'll rediscover the greatest stories ever put to paper. Oh,